I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. Co-hosting Raise Your Average with me today is Rodrigo Gordillo, President at Resolve Asset Management Global. Every stock market correction is unique with its own causes and consequences. There are some similarities between the current market decline and past declines. And following a period of speculation and excess in 2020, tech stocks have taken a beating. It's reminiscent of the tech route in 2000 when value stocks outperformed technology stocks. This is definitely a correction with its own unique flavor. And despite tech stocks making up a bigger part of the stock market than ever before, the S&P 500 actually remains resilient. Just take a look at the equal weighted version of the S&P for some clues, and you'll see that it's down just 6.8%, while the S&P is down close to 11. And what it reveals is that value stocks are finally shining. In fact, value stocks are outperforming across the board in this stock market. Value is outperforming large cap U.S., small cap U.S., foreign developed stocks, as well as emerging market value. And here to talk about both U.S. and international value investing with us are Stephen Jenkins and Jackie Yao, portfolio managers at Siona Investment Managers. So stay tuned. Stephen joined Siona in 2019. He's the co-chief investment officer. He's also co-lead portfolio manager for Siona's high conviction strategy and the lead portfolio manager for the firm's global value strategy and focused U.S. value strategy. He began his career in 1990 as an analyst at Royal and Sun Alliance Insurance Company and has most recently been a senior portfolio manager and senior vice president at CI Harbor Funds. Jackie joined Siona in 2013 following a summer internship and is a portfolio manager. He's also co-lead portfolio manager for the firm's focused dividend strategy. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Stephen, Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Pierre. Uh, pleasure thank to you. be here and uh, looking forward to our conversation. To kick things off, Stephen, Jackie, please tell us about your backgrounds, the arcs of your careers and what you do at Siona. Sure. Um, you don't mind, Jackie, I'll go first and then you can- Yeah, go right ahead. You can take over. Yeah, so as you, as you mentioned, I started my career in 1990, um, graduated um, out of business school, Wilfrid Laurie, and if you recall, it was a, um, a, a good recession that was um, starting at that time. Yeah. And- uh, I just, it was interesting. I, I had uh, lined up a job out of school with a, a small brokerage um, firm as a kind of an assistant analyst um, and uh, was also planning to travel Europe when I was when I was finished school, which I did. And the firm said, you know, get in touch with us when you come back. And lo and behold, the uh, the Canadian branch of that firm went under while I was away. So, um, I, you know, I started my search and landed um, expanding kind of where else is the investment world I'm going to touch um, other than the brokerage world and, and, and landed at Royal Insurance and uh, in the investment department. And oddly enough, um, uh, Kim Shannon hired me into the business. Um, and I work again with Kim now at Siona, who, who is the founder of Siona and uh, co-CIO. So started my career with Kim and kind of cut my teeth there and learned the ways of value investing and started as a, a, an analyst and worked my way up to an assistant PM. But also interesting was um, they, everyone at the shop took a, a turn at uh, trading as well. So 
I did a lot of trading and um, assisted on the desk and then laterally was, was, was doing all the equity trades. Um, left Royal about five years later, um, early 96, I guess it was, and I hooked up with uh, Jerry Coleman um, at then right. at the Ivy Funds at McKenzie. So another esteemed Canadian value investor. And he really helped kind of round out my, uh, my, uh, you know, my career and, and my thoughts on value investing and, and, um, you know, it was, was, you know, played a very important mentor role for, for me in my career. Um, shortly thereafter, we, uh, Jerry was, was, was hired away to launch the Harbor funds at CI in 97. And I went with him at that point in time and, uh, we launched, um, you know, Canadian portfolio, um, both large cap and a small cap portfolio at the time and, uh, launched it with great fanfare, to be honest. Um, you know, it was, it was at a good time and it was interesting on this, my, this will tie into our conversation today. You know, within, within a year or so of that successful launch, we, we started to feel the pains of, of the tech bubble, um, quite significantly. You know, we raised a lot of money out of the gate, as I said. But in short order, a lot of folks were questioning what we were doing because we, we couldn't find any value in tech and we, we didn't own any, frankly. And even in Canada, not owning Nortel at the time was, you know, it, it was painful. Mm -hmm. So we, we, it was, it was a lot of underperformance certainly, um, leading up to that peak of the tech bubble. And, um, there was, I think probably questions whether Harbor would, would continue at CI, um. But shortly thereafter, um, after the tech bubble burst, we were vindicated and, uh, um, our style went on to outperform for the next decade or so kind of top decile performance. So, um, you know, staying tried and true to our process, um, of value investing. And, you know, as, as you mentioned, Pierre, we're seeing a lot of similarities today. So we grew Harbor to about 16 billion in assets. Um, about 6 billion of that was outside of Canada. We launched a global mandate in 2002, which I spearheaded and ran. Um, and then I left CI, um, and Harbor, um, in 2016, took a couple of well-needed years away from the business and started chatting to Kim again, um, towards the end of 2018, came in early 19 to help launch a global initiative and have since also taken on the, a co-CIO role. So I'm overseeing the, the Canadian team al alongside Kim and the Canadian portfolios as well. So that's kind of where we are today. Um, and, uh, maybe I'll let Jackie, uh, chime in in terms of his career. Yeah, happy to. Um, so I went to school on the West coast. I first joined Siona as a summer intern. Uh, that was about 11 years ago. Um, I didn't know much at the time, but I must have done something right because the firm brought me back on as a full-time analyst after my graduation. Um, and I've been there since then, picking up more responsibility as time went on, um, from covering different sectors to different geographies, um, learning about different business models, doing portfolio construction and risk management, and even helping develop our ESG strategy as well. So it's been a colorful and fun journey. Um, today I spend my time analyzing Canadian, North American and global equities. Um, and I'm one of the leads on our dividend strategy as well. That's great background. And, and before we get into the nitty gritty of the strategy and talk a little bit more about, uh, Siona, I'm actually genuinely curious 
for every value manager. Um, what is it about value versus growth or, you know, there's so many styles right now, quality, low ball, equal weight. What is it about value that seems to attract the most amount of people into that space? And, mm -hmm. and, and what would keep you going after 10 years of struggle that we've seen in probably the, the, the most struggle we've seen in, in our lifetime for value? That's a great question, uh, Rodrigo. It, uh, yeah, let me take a stab at it. And Jackie, if you want to chime in, please do. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think just at the essence of it, the, you know, the, the, the notion of, of buying um, a piece of a business. We've, and we've always felt that way. We're buying a piece of business, not just a piece of paper called a stock. But being able to buy into a company um, at, uh, at a price that's below what we deem its long-term fair value or underlying business worth to be just intuitively makes so much sense. I don't know why you would do it any other way. Why, why would you overpay for something? And so I think just on a very simplistic level, it's always made a lot of sense. And, and you, we've all heard th this notion that everywhere else in our life, we were, we're quite happy to go out and find something on sale and, uh, you know, back up the truck kind of thing. And but uh, in the investing world, there's often a lot of apprehension when something appears to be on sale because there's generally some hair on it. There's some issues perhaps with the stock short term or maybe even longer term. And, um, you know, which, which is creating that discount. But I think you said that this, the simple essence of being able to buy something um, at a discount. But I'd also say, you know, for me or my career, I've... I've always felt that growth and value are inextricably linked. You know, of course, we want to buy a business that's growing over time. Um, we, you know, we, we, we tend to buy businesses that aren't, that are growing, but not, you know, at explosive rates, more, more consistent and durable type of growth rates. So, of course, we want our business to be growing over time. We just don't want to overpay for that growth. So, you know, I, I feel growth and value from that perspective are inextricably linked. Um, and it just, it really just comes down to the price we pay for a business. So, um, yeah, I, and then to your last question about, the, you know, how we're feeling today and, and after, um, 10 years or so of underperformance, I'd say the value keeps doing what it's always done. You look over the past decade and the value factor, if you will, has still produced decent absolute returns in line with what it would have done in history. Um, it's just that relative to the explosive returns that we've seen from growth, which we also saw back in the tech bubble days, relatively it has been a, it's been a very poor underperformer, but on an absolute basis, it keep, continues to do what it always does. And we expect it to continue to do that going forward. Can I say the same about growth at the moment? I don't know. I think it'll be more challenged to, to deliver, um, those types of returns that we've seen in recent years. Um, Jack, Jackie, why don't you, um, yeah, Jackie, what, what made you, who hoodwinked you into smashing <laughs> yeah, your head against exactly. the wall? <laughs> that, that's exactly, you know what, Rodrigo, that's the, I was thinking, Jackie, I was, when you were talking about your, when you're sharing your bio, you know, I was thinking, Hmm, that's a really difficult time to uh, come into this area of investing or, you know, this specialty. Uh, so I was curious, but go ahead. <laughs> yes, no, certainly. I, I mean, I think personally I was enamored by the writings of 
um, you know, Ben Graham and Warren Buffett. And I suspect a lot yeah. of people who buy into the teachings also kind of came in through, um, you know, the same readings, right? Obviously, um, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, very successful investors. And I know a lot of, a lot of my peers can quote their, um, quote their sayings right off the heart. Right. So, um, the other thing I'll say is that, uh, and Stephen alluded to this as well. There's a lot of different flavors of value, right? Some go deep value, you know, buying in at, uh, buying assets at, uh, you know, their underlying asset value. There are groups like relative value, which is what we are. Um, we're looking at, you know, relative multiples to even some flavors that verge on being growth investing. Um, and, and those investors are willing to pay for, you know, foreseeable earnings growth or cash flow growth. Um, and all of them call themselves value. So you end up with a large swath of different kinds of investors actually calling themselves by the same name. Um, without getting into the nitty gritty of, of distinguishing. And, and I suspect that's why um, you hear that a lot of uh, people, you know, call themselves value investors. But the other thing I would say, um, and then you asked, you know, what, what keeps me going after such a, a long and cold winter in value investing, I, I suspect, and, and I'm not a macro guy and I, and I, you know, I don't like to prognosticate, but I think we're coming to a point where the macro environment um, is proving to be a little bit more friendly to value and buy, uh, value investors. I think, um, you know, interest rates and inflation starts to lift off the ground. Um, I think economic cycles and economic growth are starting to return. You're starting to see the beginnings of that. And um, there's, you know, commodities are in vogue again, and there's a real demand and shortage of supply in that space. I think all of these things bode well for value investors. So, um, you're right. It's been a long wait. Um, one that has been, uh, strangely longer than usual, at least by historic standards, but, um, it's coming back and, and certainly, you know, a lot of the, uh, team members at Siona are certainly, um, very excited to see a turn. We're seeing it in our performance numbers as well, um, as of 2022. And so. Uh, we're, we're happy to see that, uh, we, we suspect that it'll continue and we'll, we'll see what's, uh, the rest of the year has in store for us. So, so let's dig into that a little bit, the, this turnaround and also, uh, Steve, the turnaround that we saw in 2000 for value. What, what is growth investors kryptonite and what causes the rotation away from growth towards value? What are the macro or micro changes that cause that in your opinion? Yeah, good question. And there's certainly what, there are some similarities, um, to 2000, um, absolutely. And I think at the time, if I recall, you know, you didn't know when it was going to happen and it all, you know, it just felt like it was, it was collapsing under its own weight at the time, um, with, 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 with valuations where they were, and then you know, couple that with a lot of disappointments in terms of the underlying, um, expectations of the businesses. Um, you know, and I think that played the, one of the biggest roles back in that day was just the, um, the expectations built into the stocks, suggesting that, you know, in order to, to, to kind of, um, earn that multiple, the, the, the growth rates of the businesses would have had to have delivered over the next decade or 20 years were just. We're, we're at rates that wouldn't, had never been seen before. So it was just kind of collapsing under its own weight of, of expectations. Today, you know, we're, we, we've, we're coming off of, 
um, you know, 40 year downtrend in interest rates, um, very low inflationary environment for such a long period of time. Um, that, that downdraft in rates and certainly in the last decade or so has certainly helped push higher the multiples on, on longer dated cash flows from growth or growthier companies. Um, I think that's played a very big role. Um, and that's probably playing one of the biggest roles we're seeing today in terms of starting to unwind, um, some of those, those premium multiples. But in addition, we're, and we're starting to see it now too, the, the, the fundamentals of the businesses, the expectations were high. Um, we saw it this past week with Netflix, um, you know, businesses, when they, when they don't meet those expectations and they have lofty multiples, um, often get taken behind the shed and, and, and get torn apart pretty, pretty, uh, brutally. So we're starting to see that as well. Um, and I think, you know, given the inflation we're seeing out there today as well, there's certainly going to be continued upward pressure on rates. I don't think that's a, that's um, anything that any of us don't know at the moment. I think, I think, um, you know, we all know that that's coming and there's going to be further upward pressure on rates that'll continue most likely to put pressure on, on higher multiple stocks, longer dated cash flows. And from a discount perspective. So I think, I think that's playing perhaps a bigger role today than it would have back then, but it's, it's certainly front and center today. So, so Steve, just, I want to zero in on that. Cause I don't think a lot of advisors are picking up on the nuance there. Um, growth stocks have a higher multiple because of that discount to cash flow mechanism. So correct me if I'm wrong and, and Jackie pipe in here. What you're saying is as the cash rate goes up that discount pricing model, you're going to have to, the, the present value discounting mechanism makes it so that the higher the cost of a borrow, the lower the today's present future, today's present value of future cash flows is going to be. And so the question really is, is what's the difference between a growth stock and that discount mechanism versus a value stock and the discount mechanism? They're, they shouldn't, shouldn't they both be brought back at a lower price in today's, um, in today's prices, or is it just relative, uh, multiples that is what people are looking at? I can, I could chime in here a little bit. Um, uh, the, the, I think the big difference between value and growth in that regard is that, um, value stocks tend to have their cash flows a little bit, uh, front end weighted, or at least, um, balance in terms of the, the profile of the company. Um, whereas growth stocks will have a lot of their cash flows occurring um, in the future years, maybe sometimes even 10 years or 20 years plus. And you'll, you'll hear a lot of companies that aren't generating cash flows or profits today, um, that are expected to generate a lot of, um, a lot of cash flows in the future, maybe far off into the future sometimes. Um, and so what we call that is, is long duration. And it's not unlike a bond that has a very long time to maturity. And if you map that out in terms of the years, um, and the time you, it would take for you to receive your repayment of capital, um, you know, growth stocks are a very long duration asset. And, and what happens is if you, if you put all of these models into a DCF, uh, the growth companies will end up having a, an outsized impact when you uh, move the discount rate, when you either, uh, uh, raise or lower the discount rate in this case, um, because interest rates were falling, you're, you're, you're lowering the discount rate. Um, and so, you know, they had an outsized impact on the multiples that were attributed to these stocks as well. And that's really the, that's really the, the kind of 
um, differentiation between value and growth in terms of just coming at it from a bottom-up fundamental standpoint is is how long do you have to wait before you can expect the cash flows um, and, and how visible are they? When we're thinking about stocks as a value investor, we like to look at companies that are generating cash flow today, companies that have demonstrated a history of generating cash flows, and they may not be growing much faster than, um, you know, it depends on the instance, but they may not uh, be growing much faster than GDP um, or a little bit higher than GDP growth rates. But at the end of the day, um, their valuation is supported by um, uh, past and existing cash flows. And, and, and that's what we like to hang our hats on. That's where we find stability, um, especially when you're thinking of companies that or portfolios that uh, pay a meaningful dividend, um, like the focus dividend fund that Siona runs. Um, you know, we're always looking at uh, uh, dividend payout ratios, how well supported are the dividends by um, uh, earnings and earnings growth? Yeah, it seems to me like it's a, an interesting, just uh, we can talk about the discount of cash flow. A lot of people don't understand that even, but just from an intuitive perspective, <laughs> when cash is cheap, I feel like growth stocks are able to tell a story. And because it's so easy and simple to, to finance that, you'll, you'll get more willing players in that space. You will get more of the cash flow and the loftier the dreams, the longer the goals, the Teslas, the going to Mars, the, you know, building out, you know, a new infrastructure, whether it's, I would, I would imagine that we, I certainly see crypto as a growth um, area as well. These dreams get, are easy to fund when cash is cheap. And you always have tangible assets and tangible companies there when you need them, if you need them. The moment that inflation comes goes up, you get a lot more uncertainty. And all of a sudden, you wonder whether they're going to be able to afford to do this, whether, whether people are going to be willing to pay for Netflix at the rate that they're paying for them. And maybe, you know, budgeting comes in and you're looking to actually spend money in real things, real companies that are providing real goods today. Um, and, and I think from an intuitive perspective, uh, Stephen, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just trying to get the intuition here is that when things become unclear about the future, tangible assets and tangible companies that are doing real things today end up winning. Is that kind of like a human intuitive way of thinking about value versus growth? I think you're right. I, um, and the way, you know, you, you tie that into the current environment, I think you're, you're absolutely seeing that today. Um, certainly in an inflationary environment where, you know, we haven't seen that in a long period of time and we're seeing a bit of a, a runaway inflation at the moment, but even if we're, you know, if we, if we settle in at something at 4%, that's still going to be like a hundred percent higher than we've seen in the last decade. So it's going to have an impact and it's, and it's, and, and hard assets, tangible assets, as you point out, um, are beneficiaries of that. And. I'd also say just going back to the, the question of, you know, the, the point of Jack, he was made about long duration assets and the comparison even to, to the, to the, to a bond. What was interesting too of this over this recent period, it wasn't just, you know, the high tech, sexy growth stocks. You know, when you look at the consistent earning streams and cash flow streams of a, of a consumer products company, and you look at some of the big global BMS, like a, a Nestle or a Diageo on the alcoholic drink side, um, these businesses tend to chug out very consistent growth, but nothing spectacular, you know, something maybe four or 5% organic growth, but though, because given the nature of those cash flow and the consistency of it, 
and the low rates that we had seen, and we, we, we think about that discounting mechanism, the multiples accorded to those businesses in recent years, it just, just went through the roof. Um, I remember buying Nestle back in, you know, the early two thousands at 11 times earnings. Um, you know, it was knocking on the door 30 times earnings recently. So <laughs> it's, it, it has a big impact and the underlying business hasn't really changed. It continues to deliver the same types of growth as it has in the past. Um, it may do a little better in an inflationary environment, um, if they can pass through their, their, the cost increases, which companies like that tend to have an ability to do so because they have strong brands. Um, but th those are, th those are some of the unique phenomena we saw in the last 10 years or so. And I think companies like that as well, not just tech companies, but companies, um, of that ilk in the consumer product space, um, are likely to see some compression and multiples also going forward. It seems like a lot of the, like from what you're talking about, Stephen, which is not, you know, outside like X technology, these companies that have aspirational valuations are also subject to, I mean, the technology stocks are aspirational for sure in terms of what, you know, Rod was just saying, but, but in terms of, of, um, you know, a company like Nestle, for example, having fetched what, what you could call definitely call aspirational valuations, uh, that's very interesting. I mean, I, I think, I think that's something that might be overlooked as far as long duration is concerned. I, what I'm curious about is, is, you know, because of Rodrigo's question a moment ago, which was that, you know, why is it that long duration stocks are getting killed by, by the rise in rates? So I'm curious to know, is there, is there a, you know, you have these high multiple stocks, high duration multiple, you know, and multiple stocks, and then you have, you know, you have value stocks here, but is there a mean somewhere in between that you consider to be like the median, you know, the meeting point of those two currents, like where, where, you know, you have long duration stocks getting compressed and then now we're seeing value stocks rising. Is there somewhere, is there some meeting point where, where, you know, the, like a, like a supply and demand curve where, where, you know, these two types of, of investments, um, meet? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think, I think certainly on, on the, 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 the extreme end of things where you had businesses that, um, you know, really aspirational or where even they're not cash flow positive, but, um, you know, it's, it's an exciting story. There's, there's high growth rates on the sales on the top line. Um, and the story, you know, the, the, it, you know, the, the earnings capability and the, the free cash flow and the cash flow streams are, are out there in the future at some point in time. I think that's where the discounting mechanism really works for at, the, at a low rate for those types of businesses. And when the, the rates start to change, um, they, those cash flow streams out in the distant future start to come under a microscope a little bit more. You know, I, I think if I understand where you're coming at this from, so we certainly could also see a market multiple get compressed in this environment. You know, you go back to the seventies, I suppose, when we had a, a really high inflationary environment and, and market multiples were lower than they are today, but also keep in mind, certainly market like the U S which is the biggest in the world, um, has been so heavily dominated by these high multiple stocks that, you know, is having them coming back down to earth to some degree 
is going to compress the overall market multiple. And, um, to your point, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe some value stocks or stocks that perhaps have been labeled value, um, may not appear as much of a discount to the market multiple, um, going forward if, if the, if the, the overall market multiple is compressing. But I think at the end of the day, it, it really just comes down to the individual businesses. And, um, again, um, what, what price we're paying for those companies, are we getting the margin of safety we require? And that for us, that doesn't change. So, so okay. let's, let me, uh, let, I'm just genuinely curious. Uh, I like to ask this of every value manager. We've addressed kind of the, the macro cycle that tends to affect, um, value positively and growth negatively, um, over time. And, it, and you've also mentioned how I think there's a, there's a value system for every value manager, um, a religion almost that, you know, you want to find something that makes sense to you, to you. It's, it's something real, something tangible, a company that has growth, but also dividends and, and it's tangible in many respects. But understanding how this ebb and flow between maybe growth and value or maybe value and momentum, so one paper from AQR pointing out that they're better together. Have you guys ever thought about complementing your philosophy with some momentum in order to be able to play both sides of that coin? Or is the marriage to fundamental value investing too much at this point? Oh, ending. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a strong marriage, a very strong marriage. <laughs> um, and, and you know, it's, it goes back to that notion that this works over time it, and, and it tends to work over time with less, um, volatility along the way, at least the way we apply it. And so it's, it's a less bumpy ride. So we, we, you know, we feel we're not, you know, we're not rolling the dice to get that return. So, you know, it's, it's just a less bumpier ride along the way. And, um, you know, I think the, the notion that it can, can consistently work. And as I said earlier, it, it was still working in an absolute sense. It just didn't look like it was doing much relative to the explosive growth of, of some of the stocks that were leading the, um, the markets. Um, but on an absolute basis, it was still working largely. And, um, we think that'll continue. So, um, it's a style that also, from my perspective, and I think I could speak to every member of, of our team, it, it, it matches our personality. You know, um, it's hard to, it's hard to do more than one thing, I think, and do it well. So, you know, I think, I think our, our investment personalities match our style really well. And I think you need that, um, in order to stay patient and, um, consistently apply your process, um, over time, no matter what the market climate might be. And that's what we have tended to do. And, and, um, you know, everyone I've, the teams I've been on over the years, um, tend to follow that approach and it's been a successful approach. I'll add as well, you know, we think about investing as being business owners. Um, and so when we pick companies to invest into, we want to see it supported by cash flows and, and and revenue growth and cash flow growth. And that's how we can trust that our capital will be returned uh, in due time and not burned away. Right. You know, that's the fundamental tenet of value investing. And, and 
that's something that doesn't necessarily exist as strongly in momentum investing. Those, you know, momentum investing as a strategy has an entirely different set of tenants. So um, it makes it hard for us to then switch gears and, and try to do that type of, of investing. I'm not saying that it, it doesn't work. I think there are investors that do it well out there, but um, um, it, would, it would take us a lot of uh, brand new training to, to, to get up and running. It's an interesting time. I think that there's a whole generation of investors right now. And that was also part of my, my thinking when you, you know, I, you were talking about your bio, Jackie, which is that, you know, you came in in 2013. There's, there's a whole generation of investors who don't even know what that is, right? They don't know what investing according to fundamentals is. Yeah. And, and I, I would actually add to that as well. If you think about what happened um, during the 2020 pandemic. Um, a lot of retail investors, um, you know, were, were stuck at home, locked down by the pandemic, and they found themselves with um, a bit of excess savings, either from government support or from, from just overall household savings. Um, and a lot of that money went into, the, went into the capital markets, into the equity markets. Um, and so these were brand new investors, as you say, you know, coming in. And, and what they observed and what they saw and what they learned was this this weird style of momentum driven investing um a lot of meme stocks getting popularized at the time that were getting bit up into the stratosphere and and just just not very not not good fundamentally anchored investing um and subsequently you know we saw what happened to that that bubble as it were um and it came back to invest them and, and uh, to, sorry it came back to bite them and that's the problem when you're, when you're, um, you know, coming in into this game, into this uh, strategy without a, without a good long-term kind of, um, fundamentally driven strategy. Yeah. I, I was, uh, you know, I had a, <clears throat> had a thought, Stephen, when you were talking about how, you know, absolute on an absolute basis value had, you know, had decent returns, just not as good as growth and you know, it, it reminded me of, uh, Talladega Nights, you know, the, the Will Ferrell film where, um, you know, his dad tells him, you know, if you're not first, you're last. Right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, almost like, you know, even despite the fact that value had returns, it just got dragged through the mud for, you know, for 10 years, all oh, values, dead values over this is, you know, we're done with this. And, and, and so anyways, it reminded me, but, but it was an, it was a great point that you made, which was that, you know, you can own value and growth or momentum in a portfolio together, even if one isn't performing while the other is, because, because you certainly want to be there and you want to be diversified across these, in, you know, across styles, um, for when the transition comes that we've gone through the last, uh, you know, six months, a year, uh, with the shift away from, from, uh, momentum or high duration to mm -hmm. what's happening today, which is we're having this very positive shift to value. Yeah. You know, and that, that may so, be a portfolio construction approach to the, the way you think about, you know, yeah. having things that say when everything, everything else zags. But I, I do take the Stephen's point that you want to be really good at what you do and you want to be, and, and if you want that team to be a value shop, the idea of religion and personality yeah. matching and focus is valuable in this industry. Yeah. Uh, when Absolutely. everything is you know, yeah. a squirrel looking, looking for the nut. So I, I understand the value of having a, a value focused shop 
And, uh, and then I also understand the benefit of diversification across different styles for the portfolio allocator or the asset allocator. Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, well, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to have, you know, like either you have a high conviction about hope or you have a high conviction about, you know, real earnings, yeah. real dollars and cents. So yeah. <laughs> you can't oh, yeah. growth managers have... think value managers are yeah. jumps and vice versa, but you know, <laughs> so it makes a market. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, to, to the point you were making up here about, you know, the, the style still on an absolute basis doing well. Um, I can't remember the exact numbers back prior to the tech bubble of 2000, but in a similar way, anything that was non-tech in those days was considered old economy and no one wanted to touch it. So, um, you know, I, I think from an absolute basis back then, it, 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 it struggled, but it was such a shorter period of time, you know, relative to the recent underperformance. Um, so yeah. And, and, you know, Rodrigo, to, to your point about um, the team and, you know, we, we have great, I think, great diversity of opinions and uh, input on our team. But from a point of view of, you know, all singing from the same songbook, um, we do. And that's, that's so important. But it doesn't mean, as I say, we, we don't have good diversity of thought and opinions across the table. Um, but it's so important to be rowing in the same direction. So and, let's talk and, about yeah. that, the diversity of opinions yeah. within the shop, because we've had many debates about the definition of value. So just background for us for Resolve is that we are quants. And so there's many ways, many metrics. And I understand that you guys have a filtering, a quantitative filtering mechanism, and then you get into the value, the fundamental side. Um, what is value? Is it price to book, price to equity, price to sales, and have enterprise value to EBITDA? Um, there seems to be a lot of data mining on people that call it, said the price to book was dead. Uh, are those the types of debates that you guys have? Maybe, maybe you're not having it from the academic definition of these, these, um, uh, ratios, but maybe what a com what a valuable company looks like and does, uh, how does that debate happen internally? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start off and Jackie can, can contribute on this for sure. Um, you know, we, we look at businesses in many different ways. Now, I think, you know, the, the, um, you, you look at what we screened for and maybe, um, you know, the, the original models we had in place that uh, our founder had, had, had uh, incepted, uh, decades ago, um, a quantitative approach that involved more, you know, of a book value, um, relative PE multiples, normalized ROEs, et cetera. And we still use, um, you know, it's been tweaked over the years, but we still use that as a screening tool and it doesn't work across the board for every industry or business, but, um, it, it, it's a, it's, it's a good tool and we've combined it with many others. So, you know, I wouldn't say that metric is dead. It's still, we still use it and we still throw it in the, in, in the pot and, 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 and look at it along with many others. Um, so a lot of it depends on the business, the industry, um, we will. We're big looking at uh, free cash flow. Um, we always want our businesses to be, you know, generating free cash flow over time. Um, you know, we, we look at um, EV to EBIT, EV to EBITDA, and some businesses require more of a, an asset value approach. Certainly in the in the in the resource space, mm -hmm. the material space, um, real estate. Jackie can certainly attest to that. So it, it's not one 
and one only across the board. Um, it's, it's that whole notion of, of understanding the business that you're going to be buying into and what are the drivers, what, um, you know, what, what, what's going, what, what are those cash flow and earning streams or, or operating earnings? What are they going to look like three, five years from now? And use those inputs to develop what we think is, is, is a, as a fair value for that underlying business. Now we tend to be very contrarian in our approach also, and that's a real common theme across all our portfolios. We, we tend to be buying businesses that, um, are going through some transitory issues. We're long-term thinkers, so we don't really care if, you know, a business is going through some issues that may last a quarter or two, and perhaps even three, you know, we, 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 we're not looking to make a home run by, you know, at the next six, six or 12 months. So we take advantage of those short-term transitory issues in a business to buy something at a discount. Now we have to get a clear understanding that these are transitory issues. And, um, you know, when, when, when we do have a strong sense of that and our conviction levels are there, um, we're often doing things in the marketplace that others have, you know, no interest in doing so because the market overall is very short-term focus as we know. So the, the notion of say, you know, thinking that, um, well, we, we're going to be, um, patient on this one for three to six months is, is not a, a common thought across the marketplace. And we take advantage of that to, um, to buy into these businesses, um, that are good, solid businesses from a long-term perspective when they're, you know, they're going through a short period of, of, um, turbulence. So that's, that's also a common theme in our approach, but you know, Jackie, maybe you can add some thoughts to that. I would just add that value, um, at least we don't think is just any one multiple, right? There um, is some evidence out there that. You know, the price to book multiple, for example, is becoming less relevant. Uh, we think that's because, you know, companies are becoming more asset light over time than the, the book value of assets is no longer as indicative. Um, similarly, you know, price to earnings as a multiple is also, we think, losing a little bit of relevance too, um, with the treatment of things like R&D uh, versus capitalization and amortization. Uh, these are particularly meaningful for tech companies that have a lot of R&D, uh, which one might argue should be capitalized because it does form a key part of their asset base. Um, or for serial acquirers who tend to amortize some of the, uh, the purchases over time. And so that would, both of those things would actually depress earnings and lift the PE multiple um, higher than it would initially appear. So. Our definition of value is, you know, understanding the sum total of cash flows that will, I guess, in all likelihood be made available to shareholders over the life of the company, um, to essentially repay the investor's capital investment. Right. And, and so I, I think adjusting for those nuances that I mentioned is the key to identifying where value actually lies, um, from, and, and defining value. Now, we're also happy to use different multiples or models as is applicable for the, the specific company that we're looking at. For example, in real estate, um, we're always looking at NAV and cap rate valuations. Um, in insurance and financials, we're looking at book value. That's an industry where, you know, price to book multiple is much more relevant. Um, in other areas, it's going to be cash flows and earnings. And then even within that, um, 
yeah, distinguish uh, even even within that. Um, uh, th there are differences between different companies as well. There are some financial companies that will actually use uh, an earnings model to value and and vice versa. So um, I think that's one of the advantages of being an active investor as opposed to a more uh, passive or quant-driven investor is is we can kind of use our discretion to to determine what's appropriate in which instance. And we'll jump between price to earnings or price to cash flow or price to DAV or price to book or even dividend yield um, as necessary. Now, you guys seem to agree uh, wildly with each other. What are the disagreements that happen internally that, that actually make it interesting and uh, possibly make it uh, a better investment process? What are the things that really get you guys going internally? Great question. So the I, price of oil, <laughs> the macro side. Yeah, I'm kidding, Stephen. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that's uh, you might have touched on one right there, Jackie. And and maybe you know that there is we have sector um, expertise amongst the team, but you know I think for the most part we 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 have a real generalist overlay too, and you know it's nothing's done in a silo. We, we the, the the team you know we interact. We, we discuss, um, new ideas. We discuss the portfolio as a group. So there's, there's a lot of, um, knowledge that's built, um, right across the team, across the sector. So we may have an individual who's really good on the energy front. Um, but you know, the others, um, are, 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 are involved in the research and involved in the discussion. So there's a lot of, um, good points and counterpoints across the table. So, you know, obviously that in itself will create, um, some, you know, some good contrary discussion at the table. Um, whereas, you know, someone who has deep experience in, in, in met, um, analyzing oil and gas companies, um, and may have views on the commodity itself, which you kind of have to in those sectors, you can't do it in, in a vacuum. You need to have, we're not top down investors, but you need to have views on the commodity space. Um, you know. Others around the table might not have, have, have good knowledge on the space, but not as deep. We'll, we'll, we'll have, you know, opposing views from time to time on, on where we might be thinking about commodity price inputs and, um, where we are in the cycle, et cetera. So those types of discussions come up and I'd say they come up with other sectors as well. Um, you know, Jackie, uh, does a lot of work in the, in the technology space and, um, you know, um, multiple discussions in terms of what kind of multiples we want to put on businesses in that area, especially what we're going through right now. You know, the whole space seems to be <clears throat> pressured. So we have those discussions where, you know, should we be taking our multiples down? Should we be, be thinking, um, and being a little more conservative in some areas. So those, th there's good discussions around the table. We're not, although from a style perspective, as I said, we're all singing from the same songbook. There's a lot of diversity of opinions and thoughts that go into the decision. So, um, no, Jackie, have, do you have some additional thoughts on that? Yeah, certainly. I, I would say that our, um, our investment process actually builds in a lot of disagreement into from, from start to finish, right? Um, one person brings an idea to the table and everyone <clears throat> actually gets a vote, um, from, from, you know, junior analysts all the way to CIO. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, it's an equal vote. Um, on what's, you know, the fair, fair value of that company, whether they agree with the analyst assessment and whether to buy that stock. And so 
those, of course, get uh, those votes get tracked for performance purposes as well. Um, and we leave ample room for disagreement. You, you can um, you can certainly use your own background and experiences to color your um, expectations of the stocks and your your input of the stock and your valuation. Um, and that's where the disagreement comes. We we get together and we de- debate about oh, okay, well, we think the earnings growth of this company is not as not going to be as rapid as as one uh, as as you know as stated in the report or. Um, we think the multiple that it deserves is not, shouldn't be as high or maybe even higher than, than what's been ascribed. Um, and so, you know, those, those are what forms our, um, risk management procedure or parts of our risk management procedures as well. It, it, it really stops us and, and allows us to address and identify, um, an individual, uh, uh, manager or analysts, um, personal biases because. You know, when you're running a portfolio, there's always all kinds of biases that get ingrained into the portfolio and into the names that you decide to add to the portfolio or that you want to add to the portfolio. Um, and it's up to the rest of your team to be able to kind of pick them out and really point them back to you and say, hey, how do you, you know, how do you think of this? Um, what have you thought about, you know, this factor or this idea? Um, and then does that change your view? So, so I would say that's, that's kind of the, the, the foundation of our, um, team's uh, discussions. Fascinating. Let's change gears and talk about your, your outlook and your views on the market and where you see the opportunities right now in, uh, in your space. Yeah. Um, so Pierre, we, as I mentioned, when I, when I came to Siona, we, um, you know, my, my, my focus was to, to build out a global initiative for the firm. And, um, we've been doing that. Um, and you know, obviously I still wear a a hat as a co-CIO and I have my head in Canada a lot as well, which is good. Um, and, and then this, this frankly is the approach we're, 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 we're trying to take is approach that I had taken in the past with Harbor funds. We had a, a tight knit cohesive team that was integrated. So we did Canadian and non-Canadian, as a group. Um, and I think it really broadens the research, um, and, and, and it really broadens the focus of the PMs and the analysts on the team. So this is what we're trying to build here. And, and, um, you know, we, we, as you mentioned on the outset, we have a, a global fund, um, a U.S. focused fund. And also about a year and a half ago, uh, we launched uh, an international strategy, which is an EFI strategy. And we have about, um, we certainly have a year and a half under our belt on that and we're getting some good outperformance, uh, about 1200 basis points since inception on that one. And that's, you know, that's one that really excites me to be honest. Um, when you look at the multiples of the U S marketplace, certainly at the end of last year, I think we were about 22 times earnings or forward looking earnings on the U S and the U S at the end of the year was 69% of the MSCI world index. So it had grown to, I think the largest size within that index that it had ever seen. So, um, that's really driving the global indices as well. And I think the global index, MSCI world index was around 18 times earnings, maybe a little bit more than that at the end of the year. Um, but when you look at the world outside of that, the the global markets outside of the U S developed markets, um, far cheaper. Europe around 14 times it was at the end of the year, a little cheaper today. Yeah. Um, Japan at 14 times, which, you know, 
given Japan's history over the last 20 or 30 years, um, also very cheap. Um, Canada has been cheap around 14 times. UK was at the, was ex exceptionally cheap, just over 12 times earnings. So we feel we're getting more bang for our buck in those markets. And there, there's been great outperformance of the U.S. market relative to other areas of the world in recent years. So, you know, the U.S. market, I think over the last decade at the end of 21 was compounding at over 16% for 10 years, which is extraordinary. 100-year average is something like 8%. So over-earning for sure. Um, but that's not always the case relative to other parts of the world. And there certainly are, 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 there's been lengthy periods when, when the world outside of the U.S. has outperformed for long periods of time. So we, we see that reversion to the mean occurring going forward. We're finding good businesses in those markets um, that are growing at very interesting rates and we're paying very little for those cash flows and earning streams. Um, you know, we're certainly going through some challenges in Europe at the moment, um, with the war in Ukraine, which is depressing multiples even more, but I find what tends to happen. And, you know, I lived through the, 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 um, the European financial crisis, um, not too long ago. A lot of things get painted with the same brush and, you know, you may be domiciled in a certain area of Europe, but your business is global in scope and you have profit centers around the world. And I think investors sometimes lose sight of that. So, um, we like to take advantage of, of those misconceptions from time to time and, and, you know, buy into these businesses that we think are, are, are at very attractive prices. So I think the markets outside of the U S are, are priced such that the, there's, there's a far greater chance of getting above average returns from those markets in the next 10 years relative to the U S. So that's, that's what, that's what, that's an area of the, the global markets that really excite us today. And of course, Canada, and you've, you've had Kim on, uh, Kim Shannon on your, yeah. your program. And I know, um, she's waved the Canadian flag and rightly so multiples in Canada also are very attractive today relative to, um, um, the global indices. Not to mention, mention a commodity driven economy and this continues. Yeah. It might be a, yeah, we might be off to the races. So can, can I, um, ask you about that concept of a company domiciled in a country with a misconception that it's a domestic, uh, uh stock, but rather it has global sentiment. <clears throat> There's always, every time I talk to a domestic U S manager that claim to be international. They always point to the fact that the U.S. companies, a lot of the U.S. companies that they buy into also have international centers and they're mostly an international company. So is there any truth to that? And if so, do you invest in American companies in your international um, uh, approach because they're multinational or do you not and why not? So uh, take this last part first. Um, no, in our, in our focus U.S. product, um, we're, we're solely investing in businesses that are domiciled in the U S now, are we attracted to businesses that are global in scope and have those profit centers around the world? Absolutely. Um, it's not, um, it's, it's, you know, what we don't start at that point. We, um, just as we don't start looking for geographic exposure or industry exposure, it, 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 
filtered from the bottom up. So, you know, if, if we, we find businesses that have, you know, those attractive attributes we're looking for at the right price and they happen to be global in scope, then that's great. But, um, I think just on average in recent times, at least those businesses that you cite are, have been like their, their, their European counterparts, their European cousins have been much cheaper. So you're paying less for those growing cash flows over there than you had been in the U S marketplace. Um, some cases maybe justified, but in a lot of cases, uh, we think, you know, unfairly so. So I think that's what has been created some opportunities. Um, but, um, you know, we, we, we tend to build our portfolios from, a, um, a, where the business is domiciled. So, you know, if we are if we're in, if we're, if we're investing, if the, if the fund is a U.S. fund, those would be U.S. domiciled businesses. I think what's also important to us as well is not just where a company generates its revenues, but also, um, how is it able to perform in the markets that it's participating in? Um, and what I mean by that is that oftentimes a company that is very dominant or, or has a, a, um, oligopoly, um, or, or dominant market share in one country doesn't necessarily translate to other countries. They tend to get, um, they, they tend to not be able to replicate their, um, strong competitive advantages in a new geography. And so, um, and then there are the companies that are able to, to transplant, um, those borders and, and, and transcend those borders and, and, um, expand their market share, um, expand their market capacity that way. And so, um, for us, it's really about understanding, um, how is the company able to do that and, and what allowed them to do that and, and, mm. and understanding that, you know, they were able to leverage their existing, uh, know-how and, and competitiveness in their home country and, and expand that outward and, and be able to capture sh global share that way. Um, and then of course, there's always the analysis of the specific industry itself, which can differ, um, between different countries. So, um, to, to raise an example, uh, the healthcare, uh, industry in the U S is obviously very vibrant. Um, a lot of other countries actually have some, some mix, um, uh, of, of private or sorry, publicly provided healthcare. And so doesn't necessarily lend itself to, uh, the same, um, depth of, of sector in those markets, um, or they may have more government control and more regulation, um, that disallows the companies to generate an excess return. Um, one very good example in Canada would be the telecom sector. Uh, where a lot of the telecom companies um, in Canada, including, you know, your favorite uh, TELUS, Rogers and Bell, um, mm -hmm. earn um, a reasonable return on their assets and are able to to raise their prices year over year. Whereas in most, if not all other um, developed market countries, the price of telecommunications and, and cell phones and internet service is actually deflationary, is actually the prices have been coming down and competition has been intensifying. Um, that's one of the, the rarities in the Canadian landscape. And you can call it, um, you know, regulatory capture, or you can call it, um, you know, just, just, uh, uh, regulatory protection. But at the end of the day, um, this is a sector that has proven to outperform over the long run and, and proven to, to be defensible against, um, new and existing competitors. And so when we're looking across the world and we think to ourselves, okay, you know, where, where do you want to be fishing? Where, what kind of, um, which com which countries, telecom companies and assets do we want to own? Well, it's naturally going to be 
the one where um, they exist and play in a very friendly, competitive environment. And, and we had to look no further than, than Canada for that to, to, to occur. And so, um, you know, a, a lot of the, a lot of the, the stability and cash flow that our thesis is predicated on, um, you know, relies on that uh, friendly environment continuing. You know, maybe I'll, I'll just also just share an example, um, Rodrigo, because yeah, you 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 yeah. touch on a good topic here, um, a good point about you know where businesses are domiciled and, and where they're getting their profits from globally. You know, I, I touched on the European financial crisis, and that was again a, a period where I think I felt a lot of things were getting painted with the same brush. It was we we were investing at the time in a, in a uh, an Irish company that was uh, in the food ingredients business. And, you know, it, it was very global because its customers were the Nestle's, the PepsiCo's, the Crafts of the world. So they, they followed their, their, their client base around the world. But because at the time, um, Ireland was, was one of those pig nations, well, along with Greece and Portugal, and there's a lot of, um, you know, macro concerns about these countries that, you know, everything in Ireland was getting again, tarred with that brush. And, but, you know, from an underlying business perspective, we, we saw a, a wonderful little company here that, um, you know, what, what was going on from a macro perspective, wasn't really impacting the business. And, um, that created, a, a, again, a, a wonderful opportunity to buy into a, a growing company at a, at a much reduced price. And we're sorry, we're, I got, I'm seeing some of this again today, certainly with European financials and banks. Um, the banking sector in Europe today is not what it was a decade ago. Um, there's been a lot of repairing of balance sheets over the last decades. Cap capital positions are, um, very strong relative to back then. They've, they've done a lot of repairing, as I suggested, a lot of companies are, have, are in excess capital positions relative to increased regulatory levels, um, regulatory levels that have really increased over the years. So we're even well above that. So, um, you know, I'm starting to see some of that again, where, where things just, the mem memories are short. That was a painful period for, for European banks, um, eight to 10 years ago. And, um, and memories are short. And I think, you know, first reaction is just, just to sell. And so I think that's creating some op interesting opportunities as well. Um, you know, again, you have to be selective and we are. Um, we're not just taking that shotgun approach we're, 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 we're finding individual businesses that we think have, you know, the, the, the credentials that we prize and, uh, buying them at, at a reduced price. So we, we do look for these, these disconnects, um, and, and, and that's often a common theme in, in what we do. Now, do you guys invest in, in, in developing markets as well? No, um. It's a developed market to focus. Um, I've always been a developed market, uh, um, investor and portfolio manager. I haven't delved into the emerging economies and, you know, I, I think it's just perhaps maybe, maybe not as much as I, I, I thought decade or more ago, but it requires a bit of a different skill set. I think, um, you know, with developed markets, accounting standards, et cetera, are, are relatively common and. We have access to businesses that have, uh, I find that, uh, you know, we, we can, we can discuss and call up and, and just talk to the management teams and, and you get access to management teams. They may come through town 
Um, so I, I, I just, it's, it's hard to, to be all things. And this is where we're, our focus has been. We feel we can apply our process in a consistent manner, um, in those markets as we would, if we're invest, if we're, if we're researching and investing in a company that's based in Toronto, um, we're going to take the same approach in terms of how we look at that business, whether it's based in Toronto or Paris or Tokyo. So, um, and I feel you might have to give some of that up if you're delving into the emerging economies. One of the arguments that's made quite, quite often is that markets are so efficient now because of all the data and technology that it's very hard to uncover inefficiency. What are some glaring examples that you can think of in recent history where, where you found opportunities that marketeers would claim don't exist anymore or, or are all arbitraged away? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think a lot, as I said, a lot of it for us is more those shorter term disconnects where emotion, the emotions of the market get in, in the way and you know, a business will, will sell off because of near term concerns that, you know, if you dig deeper and you understand the issues and you're comfortable that they're more transitory in nature, um, creates the opportunity. Whereas the market participants on average, either just don't have patience to hang around or, um, they don't have a full understanding of of the issues that business is dealing with and run for the exits. So I think for us, not always the case, but largely those are issues that we're, we're dealing with. The disconnect is really that the, the emotional side of the market where they, you know, the, the, the greed and the fear take come into play. And we, we try and take advantage of that. Um, yeah. you know, you know, Jackie, would you, would you agree with that largely that that's how we are doing things? Yeah, I would say so. And, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, markets are still comprised of human actors and emotions often get in the way, um, exaggeration or overreactions can occur. You know, that's why we had the, um, big, uh, bust in a lot of these profitless tech companies that we saw over the last couple of months, right? That's, that's, um, an indication or one example of inefficiency in the marketplace. Um, and you know, when it comes to market efficiency, you know, we don't like to say that the market is fully efficient. Um, but there does need to be some form of efficiency to take taking place, um, for there to be rational price discovery. You know, when we invest in a company trading temporarily below fair value, um, we need market efficiency to bring that price back to fair value, um, within some amount of time, right? That, that, that price discovery mechanism needs to work at some point in the future for us to kind of have any form of, of profit or outperformance, um, in the, in the stocks that we own. Um, but I mean, even, even just thinking back to what happened over the last, over the pandemic and, and when we saw the March, 2020 market crash, we saw different sectors become very disconnected with the, um, underlying fundamentals. Um, you know, we, we see examples of irrationality and, and market disconnects, you know, all the time. Um, one sector that I, I, I fondly remember was the auto parts sector, um, going into the crash, you know, a lot of investors treated it and rightfully so treated it like a, a garden variety, um, economic downturn where economic demand was severely suppressed. 
um, production runs were were limited and and brought back in. Um, and and a lot of these automakers and auto parts suppliers had to rein in their their capacity, reduce capacity, um, either by reducing production shifts or or uh, closing down various production lines. Um, but then, in in very short order, it actually became um, apparent that this wasn't uh, your typical economic downturn, and the demand for autos actually skyrocketed. You saw um, price indices for used vehicles actually um, double, more than double within, yeah. you know, I think, I think it was the span of a year um, because there was a massive shortage of, of, of vehicles. Everyone needed a car. Everyone was trying to get uh, uh, to move further away from the city to distance themselves, um, to, you know, travel within the country uh, since flights were not operating. Um, and, and everyone had excess money lying around excess, uh, house, house, sorry, excess household savings, um, to spend on, on a new vehicle. And so that was one part of the economy that was actually roaring, um, over the, over the, the pandemic, the post pandemic periods. And it's expected that there still remains a lot of pent up demand, um, in auto, uh, vehicle buying that will occur over the next, um, let's call it, you know, four to five years or so. And, and I remember, you know, watching these auto parts stocks get rapidly, rapidly repriced as that narrative kind of flowed through the market. And as market participants started realizing what was actually happening, um, these stocks went from, from all time lows to, to double and triple within a very short period of time. So, so, you know, I look at, I look at an event like that and I think there's no possible way that the market can be can be um, fully efficient, despite all of the computerization, the quant modeling, and and you know all the Renaissance capitals in the world that are trying to eke out every last drop of alpha from this market. The simple fact is that you know a lot of things that happen in market are hard to predict. Um, you know, history often rhymes but doesn't you know replicate perfectly, um, and so there's always going to be a little bit of give and take. Um, around the edges, around you know, trying to predict or forecast the future, and 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 around uh, properly pricing these assets um, to reflect their underlying fundamental value. Then, Kahneman and Amos Tversky talk about that as being the cascade effect, right? The idea that you uh, first some news hits the, the newspaper and it's in the back of the newspaper, and it slowly cascades from the back to the middle to the front, and once it's front news then it's over and a discerning manager might be able to catch those back news stories early to be able to benefit from that cascade effect. So the idea of perfect information, I mean, the markets are, are highly efficient, just not, not efficient enough, not to be able to, uh, um, to, to find these little opportunities for sure. That's, that's very, yeah. And, 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 um, yeah. And, and Stephen also commented on, on that idea of having a differential view between um, short-term versus long-term. And that's often where we find a lot of our ideas. Um, you know, going back to the auto parts example, um, we happen to think that there is a short-term disconnect in terms of the, the negative sentiment around the auto parts sector and auto sector um, that differs widely from the longer-term prospects and, and future potential um, that is that still exists in this space. Mm. Um, we happen to think, and and that's still uh, a thesis that we have today. We, um, that we've reflected across our portfolios. Um, we happen to think that there's you know tremendous further potential 
um, for automakers to kind of take on more, um, sorry, for, for auto parts suppliers to take on more outsourcing from the automakers and, and provide the backbone of electric vehicle componentry. Um, uh, but meanwhile, in the short term, there has been a lot of disruption in the, the Russian and Ukraine uh, situation. It's actually disrupted a big portion of the supply chain that was involved in that industry. And now we have to add to that this, this specter of an economic downturn that everyone tells us is looming. And so, you know, since the year started, um, this, this industry, the auto parts industry has sold off uh, close to 30%. Um, and so, you know, all in all, um, the, the sentiment for auto companies and auto parts suppliers has been very, but in the longer term, um, which is where we like to fish and think about and, and play, um, there's an outright shortage of vehicles out there that continues to persist. Um, there's still, you know, latent and pent up demand out there for vehicles used and new. And there's going to be a period that of, of rebuilding of inventory that needs to happen as this normalization occurs as well. And so um, we think that that's could be a multi-year kind of uh, um, tailwind for these companies that would drive earnings and returns for them. Um, but again, they're, they're being priced off of the short-term sentiment at the that, time. That's being. very that's, interesting, Jackie. Very interesting because it is exactly. an, what's happening currently is we've gone from a decade where you have this period of benign inflation and persistent growth and global collaboration and uh, a globalization where just in time inventories is was the way to go when you were a chump if you held any inventory on right because that was that's how that's how it went the world had been fixed uh everything worked smoothly and uh it's interesting to think that until that's that's changing yeah. right and we're becoming more yeah. nationalistic companies have recognized that they need to have inventory so this idea that we're going to go back to normal is actually incorrect the idea that we're going to go beyond normal and have to have inventory on hand be way, way above what we had before is an interesting kind of cascade story that will, uh, may affect the, um, the automaker industry. That's, that's very compelling yeah. story for sure. So I was just gonna say another interesting area from you talk about cascading, um, and, uh, was certainly in the back pages was the energy industry. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think we've done a very good job. Um, we, we were well positioned, um, a couple of years ago early, but, you know, and, and then it was a thesis based not on what we're seeing today. Obviously we, we couldn't determine that what's happening over in Eastern Europe, but it was a thesis based on, you know, fundamentals, um, CapEx, ESG, all that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it all lined up well and made a lot of sense to us. And, you know, we saw an index that was, geez, energy index got down to, or the energy component of the S&P 500 got down to, what, 2% or maybe just under that. And um, so, you know, nobody wanted to talk about energy and uh, no one wanted to touch it. So we were very Is, is the energy S and G now well, well, outweighing the E? Are we, are we allowed to invest in energy as yet to manages yet or well you know we we believe so um yeah. the way the approach we're taking and uh you know we're looking for businesses that are you know making improvements and um you know have have a path to to you know certain emission levels not just on the east side but also on the s and g side as well the, the g side was is, is something that's we think for the businesses we've been involved in have been covered very well over the years but certainly doing a better job on the S side too. But, um, you know, th these businesses, um, 
we, we, we need them. Yeah. And, um, the interesting component we feel is this whole capital discipline, um, that's real this time. And I don't think it's fully appreciated through, um, through the uh, market circles in terms of the ability for these companies to, to throw back cash flow to the shareholders. Um, it's starting to occur and, um, it's play, it plays a very big role in our thesis. Right. So, okay. yeah. and those are very big cycles too. They take long to turn around. So it's, uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it must've been, yeah. I mean, that, that CapEx peak must've been 2015 or something. So I don't know how long you guys have been looking at it, but it must've been a long and painful ride until recently. Well, we, we bolstered our positions, to be honest with you, um, probably, uh, within, you know, 12 and 18 months, um, and moved to a, you know, significant overweight. So, um, very good. Yeah. I'm curious to know what some of your, what some of your favorite names are right now that, that, and why? Well, I'll, I'll, uh, give you some, some thoughts, um, certainly outside of Canada and, uh, Jackie, you can chime in as well, but you know, I, I touched on energy. So well, one company that is, um, um, has a prominent position, um, in our global portfolios is, is Shell, um, the big integrated producer and domiciled in the UK and world three real kind of components to that business. Um, one being LNG, the world's leading supplier of LNG, which, um, liquefied natural gas, which we think is going to play a huge role in the transition to a greener economy. Um, the second part of their business is the marketing side or the retail end of it, which they have some 46,000 stations around the world. And, um, so they, they're, they're building and have that infrastructure to, to participate in, in a, an electrified world down the road. And the third component, which is the legacy side of things, um, is largely offshore production. Um, they've, they've sold off a lot of assets in recent times. Um, they're not putting a lot of new capital to work there. It's kind of sustain, sustaining capital. So, um, a lot of the cash flow that's being generated today from that side of the business, which is huge, is being funneled, um, into, um, greener energy sources and also back to the shareholders. Um, I mean, we were buying the business at about six or seven times earnings. Wow. At what point? That's remarkable. It is. They cut their dividend and that created a real good opportunity for us. Um, during the, the, the crisis. So, um, that's, that's a prominent one for sure. Um, and, uh, I don't, Jackie, do you have one you want to chime in on? Yeah, Jackie, how much Twitter uh, did you uh, buy, uh, three weeks ago? <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, there's, I, I can safely say, <laughs> unless I'm mistaken, there's no Twitter in any of our portfolios, but, um, <laughs> Uh, a name that I like that we own in uh, several of our non-domestic portfolios is Fresenius. Uh, Fresenius is a global dialysis provider and dialysis uh, devices provider. Yeah. Um, and the, the pandemic has really interrupted dialysis treatment. And, and unfortunately, because their patient population is a bit more sensitive um, to, to, to COVID and, and diseases, um, mortality rates have risen in the short term. And these were you know, unforeseen challenges, but we think the longer term fundamentals actually outweigh these short term hiccups. Um, the company is positioned well to provide kind of new and improved products and services to combat 
um, the, the growing epidemic and, and changing the way that service delivery is happening for patients who need dialysis. Um, and on top of that, um, dialysis and kidney disease is a, unfortunately a growing endemic, um, you know, as uh, nations become richer, become uh, more sedentary, um, there's the increased incidence of diabetes and, and um, uh, heart disease and, and other uh, illnesses that lead to um, kidney disease. And so it is a long-term fundamentally growing industry. Um, they are kind of in the midst of this shift um, from, you know, in-clinic uh, services to kind of home dialysis and, and other forms of dialysis treatments. Um, but we think that, you know, this is a global leader in what they do. They built up a lot of expertise. Um, they're creating value for, and this is the important part when it comes to um, U.S. healthcare, a lot of healthcare companies, they're creating value for the insurance companies that pay them and the, and the patients um, that use them and also um, kind of the government spending that happens for, for public healthcare systems as well. Um, they're driving value throughout that chain and cutting costs throughout that chain um, in order to make themselves, um, you know, more favorable uh, and, uh, um, and, and increase the economic value um, of the entire system. So um, that's a name that, again, you know, again, we talked about short-term versus long-term expectations, um, trades very cheaply today, um, kind of low teens sort of multiples, um, but is, uh, is a very strong and dominant operator. Wow. Dialysis, auto parts, and shell. I mean, is it any wonder why no millennials want to invest in value anymore? That, those are the three of the most boring companies. <laughs> it's a classic value move, right? Just so, oh my God, who would? What type, what type of story are you selling? You need to get sexy uh, with your we, we can keep going and uh, it might put you to sleep. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I think we're good. I'm kidding. I think this is it, right? This is where we transition to real things and where people forgot actually add value to society. Um, yeah. Investing doesn't have to be sexy, right? The sexy gets overpriced. That's right. There you go. Stephen, Jackie, any, any parting thoughts? You know, perhaps I'll just um, mention, you know, we, we've been talking um, about, um, you know, what, we, what we're doing at Siona outside of Canada. Um, it's a shop that uh, has a history of being very focused on Canada. And we're, we're certainly building our, our non-domestic capabilities. And, um, you know, some of these companies we talked about today, um, the, the one strategy that also is very interesting is, is this high conviction approach we take, high conviction strategy. And it's in the retail world, it's known as Siona Opportunities Fund, where we're, we're combining the best ideas in Canada with our best U.S. ideas and then sprinkling in some of these European ADRs. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, an approach where we can get, you know, the, 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 the best of our ideas from the different areas of, of the world where we're, we're fishing into. So that's, that's another, I, I mentioned the international strategy that the high conviction or the, the opportunities fund in the, um, as it's known in the retail world is also something we're very excited about because again, it's our best ideas and. You know, just given where we're sitting today with this resurgence in value, um, you know, with the rates moving a little higher, inflation moving higher, we feel our portfolios are very well positioned to, to deal with this. Just given the, the underlying growth of the businesses and the, the discount we're seeing across our portfolios and the companies we own relative to the underlying, underlying worth of those companies. So we, we're still seeing good discounts across our portfolios that are, are pointing to above average returns in the years ahead. So that, that gives us great confidence. Awesome. 
Well, Stephen, Jackie, I want to thank you very much for your time and your insight today. It's been a great conversation. Yes. Thank you, Stephen, Jackie. Awesome insights. Yeah. Thank, thank you both, Pierre, Rodrigo. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, great questions. And um, I think we got into some good, good topics uh, of discussion for sure. Thank you for having us. Thank, thank you. you.